So I am in a wonderful place today. I'm not going to preach to you about the Antichrist. I said, read the first verse of the book of Revelation. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Everyone in here say it. Hallelujah. Come on, from your spirit, give him glory. Come on, let's give him a little glory in the house. Put a little atmosphere in this place. Hallelujah. This is the story of Jesus Christ. And it's not a story of fear or unbelief. It's a story of glorious, wonderful grace. I commend you again as this wonderful house of prayer for all nations for your global vision. I, I grant you from my spirit grace as well as you travel, as you go. I want to give a, if I may, pastor, before the congregation here, I give you a charge. I'm going to give you a charge as a spiritual father. You are one of 12. You are one of 12 of a council who comes around me as a papa. We're going to be meeting, what is it, a week from this coming Wednesday. We're going to be meeting in Wilmington, Delaware. I am going to ask you that you would please help these men understand that in order for a true spiritual reformation to come, it must be a reformation based in grace. Because grace and reconciliation are the basis for all true reformation. Martin Luther, in the great Protestant revolution, had the revelation, the just shall live by faith, justified by faith into grace. That's what brought a revolution that changed the whole face of the Christian world. It's the only thing that will bring about the great third reformation. Remind them that I may be missing a step now, that I may need to, I may need to decrease. You must increase, and they must increase, not just toward me as a man, but toward the message of spiritual reformation, grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You be bold in that, please. In that counsel, please be bold. I love you so much. Amen. I would like to remind you that Today, as I minister to you, let me be as slow as I want to be here, okay? Today, as I minister to you, I am going to do something that is probably my M.O. I'm going to do differently than yesterday. Yesterday, we talked about the details of, of justification. I tried to make it as simple as possible because there are so many facets to regeneration. I want to talk today about sanctification, regeneration, justification, atonement, all of those things. They are just, are you hearing me now? They are just different glorious hues or colors seen through the prism of grace. Okay? All of them together, compiled together, gathered together, is what gives grace its face. It is the gathering together of all of those components that gives grace a face. My text, if you need one for today, will be, are you ready for this? Okay. Looking for grace. Looking for grace. Let me read this to you briefly. This will not be the passage of my text. This is Hebrews 4. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace. So let's just say, let's call it finding 
grace, okay? Would you say that with me? Finding grace. Let me do these before words just briefly for you. Justification is, and I'm not much of a note guy, but I have compiled just a few little things here. Justification is perhaps the most crucial concept of the New Testament, probably is, together with, let me pause here for a moment. What I'm going to say here, you may need to go back and listen to again, because what I'm saying here, you may not get this all the first time, okay? And I don't mean that in a, in a rude way, but I'm, go, I'm going to give you heavy context here for what I'm about to do. Justification is perhaps the most crucial concept, probably is the most crucial or important concept of the entire New Testament. Together with sanctification, regeneration, reconciliation, glorification, and other concepts, justification is just another brilliant hue or color seen through the prism of the Word of God. Whereas regeneration describes the inner change brought to the child of God through faith, justification is a legal term designed to picture the believer's new status before God. So, regeneration describes the inner change. Justification is the legal term that tells us what our standing with God is. Justification, like all other aspects of salvation, is appropriated by faith. If there is no faith, then there is not an appropriation or a connection. That's why the Scripture says, by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. God extends the gift. By faith, you reach out to receive it. Does that make sense to you? Everybody still with me just a little bit? There's a word that I have found in the New Testament that is used only once, and it is a very, very important word. It's called propitiation. Hysterion in the Greek. Hysterion. Propitiation. Let's all say propitiation. This word propitiation was really used by these translators, and yet there has been a debate over all the years, and I'm, going to, I'm just giving you a little foundation, a debate over all the years about whether it should be used because some folks thought that really expiation should be used rather than this word that, is used in the scripture propitiation because the word propitiation actually means a sacrifice made to appease God. And because of the Greek mythology, they were constantly, in the Greek mythology, they were constantly talking about how angry all of their gods were. And since their gods were so angry at man, then they were always seeking ways to take sacrifices to appease their gods. And it was called propitiation. In other words, the sin of one thing would be laid on another. Or the crime of one thing could be laid on something else. This is not new to God. Because he also, in the Old Testament, as you know, organized, orchestrated, and required sacrifices of lambs and of goats and of bulls and of turtle doves and of pigeons. Are you all still with me? And then the Scripture says, but the blood of these could never, the blood of bulls and of goats could never take away sin. So when the writer writes propitiation, some of them didn't want that because they thought it looked like they were simply appeasing an angry God by using the term propitiation. 
But the writers and the, believe it or not, those translators were absolutely correct in their rendering of the word propitiation because the difference between the doctrine of propitiation in Christianity and in mythology is this, that God, rather than being just angry, he was holy, perfect, immutable, the living God, never capricious, being immutable. He never ruled by changing moods. Consequently, God's wrath is a settled, listen to this, a settled disposition against all evil. Not just against man, but against all evil. And that justice, the justice demands that a God of holiness receive punishment in some sense for the exclusion of sin and that it must be satisfied. In other words, God requires that sin be satisfied. Propitiation is the work of Christ on the cross in which he met the demands of the righteousness of God against sin, both satisfying the requirements of God's justice and canceling the guilt of man. So he became both the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He became, does that make sense? He became both the sacrifice and the sacrificer, which means that he himself bore our sins. So it wasn't something else. He took our sins. He himself took our sins, became the sacrifice. Uh, how many of you think you understand what I've said so far? Does that make any sense? Well, about five of us in here understand that. Maybe I've taken too long on that. I just want to say that what I'm about to talk about today, I'm just going to assume that you understand all of this. How many of you understand that Jesus took our sins? How many of you understand that he paid the price for our sins, past, present, and future? How many of you understand that grace is the accumulation of redemption, atonement, sanctification, justification? How many of you understand all of that? Good. Now I can tell you my story. Okay. Psalm 85, verse 5. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy. Remember, we're talking about finding grace. Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people, to his saints. Let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. An old, old text that I took many, many years ago. I just want to take a piece of it here today for you. David, in my opinion, is probably the most colorful character in all of the patriot gallery of the great book. David is unique. Outside of Jesus Christ, he is probably the most unique and colorful character of the whole Bible. He is a saint and a devil. He is a poet, a singer, a musician, and a warrior. Those things don't normally go together, right? Yeah. He is a prophet and a sinner. He is a priest and a king. Those things normally don't go together. He was uniquely set in his time as some unusual seer of things natural and 
a protention of things spiritual. He was a natural, natural man. And he was a spiritual, spiritual being. Today, near the end of his reign, now almost 40 years, he's sitting on his throne in his cedar house. At the foot of his throne, on one side, is an old, worn-out lion skin. On the other side is a bearskin rug, taken when he was just a boy. It used to be nailed on the inside of Jesse, his father's barn. He took it down when he became king, brought it into his, his throne room. A reminder of the power and intervention of God in his youth. Behind his throne, just a little to the right, is a sword, normally too big to be wielded by an average man. It's the sword of Goliath. He had taken it from behind the temple. Remember? Yeah, when the priests of Nob had given him, as a matter of fact, they should never have. He couldn't have done it, and yet he did it. He ate the showbread. He drank the wine from the table. He was hungry. He was thirsty. But he was in no ways any, anyone in priesthood who could partake of those. And yet, somehow, he found something that gave him license to be places and do things that others could not be and could not do. He found a window in the dispensation. He found a space in time where he operated and managed and lived in two places at the same time. No one else in the whole Old Testament did that. He's got the thin wreath of gold pressed down on his brow. His once raven black long dark hair is now streaked with silver. The pressure of the thin rim around his head marking him as king, not just king of one, but king of all Israel, Judah and Israel. He pulls it up and off his head. It leaves a small pink rim around his brow. He lays it in the chair beside him. He's been thinking. The crown is putting pressure on his brain. He's thinking. Just a few days ago, I wrote, How amiable are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. The sparrow hath found, the swallow hath found a nest for herself, even in the gables of the temple. The temple. The temple. I consummated that particular poem, that writing, that song with, God will give grace and glory. And yet somehow, that which I think I may have caught a glimpse of still hides herself so that I only see fleeting glimpses of something I wish I could take a full photo of. Because grace is hiding. Grace needs to be found. When I was just a kid, I was about eight years old, we went to visit my cousins in West Virginia. They lived in a little house by a little church with a little cemetery. My cousins' names were Paul and Gracie. Gracie. 
Gracie was a little older than Paul. Paul was my age. Gracie was about three years older. And we all decided to play hide and seek. And we did. But Gracie was a slick hider. Gracie was hard to find, which gives me my text, Finding Grace. <laughs> Paul, it was no problem because he was always giggling. You could find Paul. 88, 89, Coming ready or not. And you hear, Paul is right over there. But where's Gracie? We'd look and look and look. I remember one time we were playing hide and seek, and I looked everywhere. I looked behind the tool shed. I looked even in the summer porch. I looked under the old car. She wasn't there. I looked behind the trees. I looked around the house. I looked by the barn. I even looked in the stall. It smelled terrible in there. I couldn't find Gracie. And then I saw something almost like a little movement, and I thought that tombstone moved because it was right by the cemetery. And I kept looking, and I, and I backed away, and I stood way back. I was it. But I had found Paul, couldn't find Gracie. And the tombstone moved, I thought. And then I saw just out from the corner of the tombstone a little yellow piece of cloth. Ah, it was Gracie's dress. I went running toward it. And I found her. I found her just on the other side of a grave. I was looking for grace. Just on the other side of a grave. Looking for grace. See, all through the ages, David is thinking. Men have been looking for her. Looking. Noah found her briefly. He found her. He found grace. But she was locked up in the eyes of the Lord. He only saw a reflection from something inside of something else. He didn't see her free out roaming out. She was in the eyes. It was something locked in God himself. Something that Noah could see, but it was only a little yellow strip of something. He found grace, but somewhere it was beyond the graves of an entire generation that would be wiped out by a flood just on the other side of a grave. He found something unique because you know that the lens of the eye like a camera, takes a picture. But the picture comes in through the lens and it's reversed on the retina. It's upside down. But Noah saw it long enough to realize that if you could ever find grace in the eyes of the Lord, that the eyes of the Lord could turn an upside-down world right-side up. And so he built a boat and got right-side up while everything else was upside-down. Right-side up and an upside-down world. Twenty-five times, Pastor, 25 times, the word grace is used from Noah. That's the first time it's used in Scripture. Noah found grace. In the eyes. But see, the reason why he even glimpsed it was because he was a righteous man. He was just and he was perfect in his generation. See, works alone may give you a glimpse of grace, but it can never release grace. And so God allowed him to build a boat to the saving of his house. Are you all still here with me? Is it okay if I just tell you stories this morning? 25 times up until you get all the way up to Mephibosheth. If it be possible, would you give grace unto my servant, unto my Lord Mephibosheth, a crippled son of Jonathan. 
all the way from Noah, 25 times. Esther, she found grace in the eyes of the king. You can just go on and on and on. They found grace in the eyes, which means favor, 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 favor. The word is Cain, K-H-A-N-E, Cain, favor, favor, favor. Until you get down to Ezra. And Ezra, believe it or not, Ezra saw something else. He didn't just see Cain. He saw something that is called Tech Inu. Tech Inu. Not just Cain. Uh, am I boring you with this? I don't have to give you this detail, but I thought you might be interested. Because for 25 times in all of the times grace is sought, it is in something you have to see. If I may find grace in thy sight. Grace had to be found in sight. And yet the New Testament says we walk not, we walk by faith and not by, because everything in the Old Testament, any grace that was shown had to be in the eye. It had to be seen. It had to be natural in order to be reciprocal. Yeah. And yet, when it came to Ezra, he brought back out of captivity a remnant. And this remnant, the Bible says, when he prayed, the Bible said he caught a glimpse of something. Because this was not just Cain supplementing, supplication, seeking for favor, but this was Tekanah. What is Tekanah? He found a little space where Tekanah was shown, which means rather than man supplicating to see God, it was God supplicating to man. It was something in God that was reaching. So man is always reaching for God, but now God reached out and said, I have reserved, I could have destroyed the whole nation, but I have reserved a remnant and have brought them in technica, in grace, that I may restore Israel through a remnant which gave the idea that somewhere in the mind and the heart of God, there was desire, not just man wanting God, but God wanting man. Not just man looking for grace, but maybe grace looking for man. Maybe it wasn't just the yearning of men for grace, but maybe it was grace somewhere in the eyes and in the heart and the Spirit of God wanting to find man. Wouldn't that be unique? And yet, 11 more times in the Old Testament, the word grace is used, and it's always Cain. Cain, favor. Man looking for God. Man trying to find grace. Finding grace grace. Just a glimpse from time to time. This was David's problem. This was his meditation. He's sitting on the throne. He's taken off his crown. Now he lays down his scepter because he has caught glimpses. He's thinking back through it. Noah found grace. Esther found grace. All these people found grace. They were looking for grace. They found a glimpse. They found, but I want to see thy face. Oh, show me. I don't want to just see. I don't want to just see a wisp. I don't want to just see an apparition. I don't want to just see a shadow. Show me thy face, oh God. I want to see what grace really looks like. Does grace have any features? Because up until now, it's almost like just a, a cloud. I thought I would find her. I thought I could see her because I learned that grace. I learned that grace, according to the word propitiation, 
Do you know, if you look in the Greek, do you know what the word propitiation actually means? Mercy seat. It means, you're right, Pastor. It means mercy. That somewhere in the heart of God, there is a place, a throne, a seat where grace is seated. And that's why David thought when he brought the ark back. Because the seat where mercy is must also be the throne where grace resides. The seat where mercy sits must because they are not just sisters. They are not just cousins. Mercy is the manifestation of the unseen face of grace. They are one and the same. Are you still here? So if I could find the mercy seat, I could find the throne of grace. But I'm still looking. And David gets up because he's thinking about his kingship and about his rulership. He's thinking about his sin. He's had a man murdered, took his wife. He's been at war to the point that his hand claved to the sword. He had to have strong men pry his fingers open because he'd been in battle so long that the tendons and the muscles of the arm had pulled his fingers around the hilt of the sword until he could not let it go. Hours of battle, blood splatter, gore, the smell of terrible, rotting flesh. He had come back in battle after battle. Then he thought about how he had been placed by this God, this great merciful God, into the kingship, only to be chased like a rabbit through a briar patch by a king who had previously been anointed. He's running here. He loses a wife. He loses his best friend, Jonathan. Now he's down in Zigleg. He's got a town. Now they burn Zigleg with fire. Now they steal his oxen and his cattle. Now he goes and asks for one drink of water. And men have to break through lines to get it. When it comes back, it's so precious to him, he just pours it out as an offering on the ground. Now he's hungry. But Nabal is a mean man and says, Who is David? David then sees him die, marries Abigail. Abigail's hiding. They're all running. David is remembering particularly the day after he had become king. Saul was gone. Jonathan was gone. It did not make him happy. He was not happy. He mourned for Saul. He mourned for Jonathan. He said of them, they were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. How are the mighty fallen? And the swords of war perished. He grieved over his enemy. There was some mercy in him. But grace was still hiding somewhere. Just fleeting glimpses now and then. That's why he can write, grace and glory will be given by God. And two chapters later he says, are you going to be angry with us forever? How can this dichotomy, this great, great, massive, wonderful deliverance and great, great war and terror. It reminds me of my spirit. I am a wretched man. The things I would do, I do not. The things I would not do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And now he's thinking about those corpses, seven of them, swinging in the autumn wind. The hot winds of summer have rotted away their flesh. Their eyes have sunken and fallen back into the skull. A wretched old woman like some witch on a rock, wrapped in sackcloth, runs back and forth and beats the fowl 
off these corpses who were her sons. Rizpah. David saw her one day riding from the palace, out beating the fowl off her dead sons. They had delivered these sons of Saul to the Moabites. They had hung them because of the meanness of Saul toward them. David saw them, had them cut down. He didn't just bury them. He went and got Jonathan's bones. He went and got Saul's bones. He buried them properly. He looked at all of this. He is a king standing on the other side of a tombstone from grace. He walks down past the bear skin and the lion skin. He throws his scepter back on the cushioned throne. He throws off his royal garment. He puts on him an old cloak, one that he'd worn in battle, sliced here, splatted there. When the guards walk out to go with him, he waves them back. I want to be alone. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. I think he must have wandered. It was a few miles, maybe three miles, from where he sat in Zion to where he had been as a boy near Bethlehem. I think eventually he must have made his way and followed a path carved out by the sharp hooves of the sheep Generation after generation, he had walked this same trail when he was just a boy. He remembers every turn. He remembers all the rocks. He remembers where the dips were. And finally down and over a small vale and out into a little lush valley. And there was a gentle stream. Rapids up above, ripples down beneath, calmness there and a tree. And a rock. That's where he wrote, he's the rock of my salvation. There's where he wrote, he shall be like a tree. He remembers all of this. He leadeth me beside still waters. And then flung from his lips with all of the poems of mercy, with all of the ideas of some apparition that he's called grace, he has never yet been able to fold into his arms the idea that she is real, that she is there, that she is free. She's always hidden somewhere because this God found, somehow God found great glory in hiding her. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. What David didn't understand, I think, is that God never hides anything from his beloved. He only hides it for them. But then the next line said, but it is the honor of kings, not average common people. Only kings get to find the things that God hides. Only kings. Only kings. Did you ever wonder why we are walking into a kingdom? Because only in the kingdom does God reveal some things that other saved men never see. He gets almost to the place where he said, the Lord is my shepherd. There were a few sheep still scattered generations and generations later. And then it flung itself from his lips. Are you going to be angry with us forever? Here is a king, a gray-streaked-haired older man the tendons in his arms are exposed by the loss of the flesh of his muscle. He is now lumbering where he used to be light. He is now just a waif where he used to be a giant. He is declining. He's almost gone. His years have passed. He's looking at a God somewhere who seems to be nowhere who has shown mercy. It means God's got it has shown grace, it means God is it, but has never released it. Are you going to 
be angry with us? Will you draw out your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O God, and grant us thy salvation. They buried him in a dusty grave. He thought that he would have found it when he brought back the ark and when they got the tent all ready and they had all the fixtures and the veil, he wouldn't let them put a veil in the tabernacle because day after day he would come by and look in because nobody could really go in but he wouldn't allow them to put a veil between the holy place and the holy of holies I wonder how many days he came by with his entourage what are you looking for I'm looking for grace I know she's in there looking for grace. Where are you going to find her? Just on the other side of a grave. Yeah. And the hammer is ringing. Loud staccato. You can hear it all the way through the streets of Jerusalem. Pounding. Pow. Pow. And then you can see in the morning sunrise three crosses. This man on the middle tree. Who is that? Crucifixion was not a new thing around Jerusalem. The Romans were doing it every day. They were hanging somebody up all the time. Taking somebody down, putting somebody else up. But today is an interesting day. The reason it's so interesting is because of the trials that have gone on. And the news of that has spread through the streets of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Pilate himself made an appearance, which is a very rare thing. He has stepped to the edge of the stage and said, what do you want me to do with this man? Which means that something was uniquely different about this man than all of the other men. I'm going to release one. It's my, it's my MO. Every year we release a prisoner. This man, I've asked him. I find no fault in him. I've asked him if he's a king. Yeah, he says he is. He's no threat to Rome. Are you a king? Yeah. And then he says that he is truth. <laughs> yeah. I asked him, what is truth? <laughs> he didn't say anything else. Ah, but somebody else heard that. As a matter of fact, on the other side of that story, Inside the shadows of the holiest place. Are you all still here with me? Inside, she has been there forever. Because the rest of my text says that David caught a glimpse. He caught a little glimpse. Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Wilt thou draw out thy wrath to all generations? Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Show us thy mercy, O God, and grant us thy salvation. He must have stopped. And then he said, I will hear what God the Lord will say. He will speak peace to his people. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him. The glory may dwell on our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Ah, that's when it's going to, that's when we'll find, that's when grace will show up.
That's when it is. But they laid him in a grave. David saw it. As a matter of fact, Simon Peter even quoted his words in that great Pentecostal message. Thou shalt not leave his soul in the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. He realized that there would come a person. There would come a king. There would come someone whom he could not yet name, on which God would use as catalyst to show the face of grace. But it would be just beyond a grave. And now, inside, where she has been for generations and for generations and for generations, mercy is up. She was up pacing the veil. She was there when they brought a little boy in generations and generations and generations ago. This little boy was left by his mother. His mother's name was Grace. Hannah in Hebrew. And she thought that this was the time. She's up off her seat and she's pacing the veil. Because she hears the little boy's whimpering cry as he's thrust into the arms of the great huge Eli who takes him and lays him down in the back of the temple. She didn't let anybody know. But there were nights and nights when he snubbed and cried in his cot. He was only five years old. And she, in the night, would wrap her arms around him in the back of the temple and rock him to sleep because he was the child of grace. Maybe he had the key to let her out if she could just get out of this place. Others called it the holiest. She called it the darkest while others were trying to see in. She was always trying to see out. She had glanced out one time and had seen Noah. She had glanced out another time and had seen Ezra. She's holding. When David had said mercy and truth are met together, she heard him. She got up. But she could go no farther because justice pushed her back. And righteousness made her stay. She was locked in her prison on her seat between the cherubim. And then she got up again. How long has it been? I don't know. A hundred years. Seven hundred years. I don't know. She only remembers that a prophet said, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be, that's him, that's him, that's, that's truth, that's my lover. If I can just meet him, if I can embrace him, if we can get together, we can produce grace. But it'll take mercy and truth. David saw it, mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. If I can just... Get out and find my lover. And then she hears a little whimpering cry all the way from the temple in Zion that Herod has built. She hears a whimper five miles away in a little stable. She hears a unique cry, not too much unlike the snubbing and the crying of Samuel, not too much unlike the loneliness of Daniel, not too much, unlike the whimper of prophets. Not too much, unlike Isaiah's lamb to the slaughter. And yet, this seems different. And now, she is back again, sitting on her seat. And then, 12 years later, she gets up again. I heard him. I, did you hear that? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? 
I must be about my father's business. An adolescent voice. Just the voice of an immature boy. But she's up off the mercy seat, pacing the veil again, back and forth, and back and forth. But she cannot get out. She's been locked back away. David had taken a veil away. The priest put it back. For 400 long years, there had not been one word from God to man. She sat idle, lonely, until she heard the Bethlehem whimper. And now 12 years have gone by, and she hears the voice. I must be about my father's business. That's him. That's him. And she paces the veil again. And then she's back. She's sitting down now for 17, 18 more years. And she hears his voice again. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a dinner. My father, that's him. She's up again, off the mercy seat, back to the veil, pacing back and forth, back and forth. You've made it a den of thieves. She heard him from time to time outside the temple. And now it seems too late. The ringing hammer, the crosses dropped into their holes. He's writhing his back looks like a plowed field. He has been beaten nearly to death. Every time he flexes up, the torsion of his body catches meat on the rugged pieces of the tree. They've pushed thorns into his ivory skull until little streamlets of blood run down across his face. His face looks like a road map. Somebody has plucked his beard out by the roots, big red splotches. Rubbery mucus hangs from his lips and his nose where he's been spit on. His cheeks and his face and his brow looks like a piece of rotten liver where 600 strong soldiers have smitten him, hit him as hard as they could with an open hand. And now he's up again trying to get all of the muscles in his upper body to try to regain some strength, and then he's sagging down again. The actual torture of his position is pulling all of the vertebrae out of place in his back because he's in a double S twist, one foot over the other, one arm back this way, one arm back that way. Scientists tell us that within two hours, the cartilage begins to pop out. And when it does, it pulls on different portions of the nervous system in the spinal cord until the whole body is screaming. Crucifixion is not just hanging somebody up. It's hanging them in a torturous position so that every muscle in his body is now tugging at the vascular system, pulling apart veins until big black sacks of blood hang under his arms. His biceps are pulled away from the skeletal form. His triceps are rottening in his flesh with the blood sucking around them. And then he's down again. He's bleeding from every orifice in his body, his eyes, his nose, his ears, his mouth, his rectum. He is dying on this tree. Don't let him die. He's the only hope we have of finding grace. For God's sake, don't let him die. She hears him. She's in the temple. My God! <laughs> that's him, that's him. She's up off the mercy seat. If I can just get to him. If I can just get to him. And she is back and forth against this veil. She's locked in. Justice on one side will not let her go through. On the other side, she is held back by the forces of time and eternity. She wants out. She thought he would come in. She thought that one day he would step in. She would meet him. She has loved him always. Since before the foundation of the earth, when all the attributes of God leaned together over the architectural plan of redemption, mercy was there. And she saw a pivotal moment in time where she would meet a lover. And they together would put a face on grace.
And now he's screaming in torture. He's down again, hanging until the pectoral muscles are now pulling away from the rib cage. And then he's up again with all the cramping in the thighs and in the buttocks. He's screaming, I thirst. Ah, my God. I called upon you, oh God. Ah, our fathers called upon you, and you heard them. I was placed upon thee from my mother's breast. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. Oh, my God. Our fathers trusted in you. You delivered them. My God. And now all of those who are gathered at the foot of the cross are not just people mocking, but they turn in his mind, in this buzzing subconscious. Now they turn into beasts. They look like animals to him. Ah, the chief priest is simply saying, hey, you saved yourselves. You others, you cannot save. He didn't see a man. The bulls of Bashan. He's hallucinating. The bulls of Bashan. I said, ah, the dogs. Ah, the dogs gnash on me with their teeth. Ah, my God. Ah, and he's down again. He's dying. He's dying. She's trying to get out. If I can get to him, if I can save him. And then she heard it. It is finished. In her desperation, she grabs them. <laughs> And then the earth begins to shake. It's trembling now. She can hear the stones in the temple moving. And suddenly from the top all the way down to the bottom, the veil is torn in two. It's rent in twain. Mercy steps back. She scrapes from her garments the blood of bulls and goats. And she steps through the veil of the temple, out through the inner court, out through the outer court, out into the dusty street. She finds a ridge where the cross has made a narrow gap, and she, like a bloodhound searching for her master, from one drop of blood to another, she follows it until she bumps into the bottom of an old rugged cross, hanging there, just a piece of meat. Mercy reached up and put her arms around truth. And when she did, righteousness looked down from heaven and peace leaped out of the earth. Stand up on your feet with me. Mercy and truth. In the temple, <laughs> someone is still there. Mercy is hanging on meat. But the spirit of mercy there was only just a light between the wings of the cherubim. Only just a flickering reflection giving some nebulous idea but never a form. She's sweeping up the remnants of an old law. Put them into a thing that never needed to be opened again. And then she walks toward a garden where she has already provided the tomb. It's got to happen. And it did. She calls from the mercy seat and the golden cherubim. She speaks one word. And they come to life. Two of them, one on either side, they walk into the garden unseen. They are no longer monuments to a law. They are living, powerful characters of spiritual absolution. It's been three days. They go over 
They're not just golden cherubim anymore. They are powerful, mighty spiritual beings. And they roll the stone away early in the morning. They roll it all away. He steps out. She steps in. She folds a napkin carefully that has been wrapped around his face. The other garment she leaves littered on the bier. She commands the angels that they set one side and on the other of the place where he lay, which means what used to be the mercy seat in a guarded, hidden place is now two angels standing at the head and the foot of a grave slab with an empty, open, vanished Christ. He is not here. (laughs) Why is he not here? Because I have spirited him away. He has just sprinkled blood on the mercy seat in the heavenlies, the heavenly sanctuary which God pitched and not man. And when the blood of Christ hit the mercy seat in the heavenlies. Everything in law disappeared. And the characteristics that only blind men could see. Jesus, thou son of David, was not said by men who had eyes. Only those who lose their natural sight can see his glory. Only those who are willing to die can live. If you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life, you'll find it. Because grace is just on the other side of your tombstone. He gave her a face. He gave her eyes and ears. He gave her more than just a cave to dwell in. He gave her access to the heart of every man. She is the bearer of his greatest gift. She comes to us all. Some of you have met her. It was the conviction of the heart. It was when your spirit said, I see, I see. He did die for me. To as many as received him, to them gave him. Who was the by Grace. 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 Mercy there was great. And grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my tortured, bitter soul found liberty at Calvary. Jesus paid it all. Past, present, future. If you don't think so, go ask grace. She ran out while mercy was hanging on his cross and opened up the graves of Old Testament saints with one sweep of her hand. She had already swept up the law said it's fulfilled, it's done, it's over. Now she's turning over tombstones, gravestones, letting out patriarchs, letting out prophets, letting out total. They're walking in the streets of Jerusalem. She's shooing them along. She's running back and forth. She's carried the sprinkling of blood. She is free. She's in this room now. She's saying, whosoever will, let him come and take of the water of life freely. Whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, whatever you will do, it's already paid for. I am witness to the gift of God. If you're looking for grace, you just found her. Not in a hidden cave, not with a natural seat. She has knocked on the door of your heart and said, if you will let me come in, I will give you life forevermore. I love you all. I love you. Never stop looking for grace because he gives all
Could I say one more thing? Could I say just one more thing? Do you remember what led her out? The earthquake? The tearing of the veil? Could I suggest to you that the way she came out is the same gap through which you will go in? But if it takes an earthquake to let her out, it will take an earthquake to let you in, which means that everything in your life that can be shaken will be shaken so that the things which cannot be shaken will remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, we stand in the grace of God. I love you now and forever. Amen.